0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Greatest Command of All. All right, well, in the last couple of Bible studies that we we have had here at Calvary, we've seen, as we've gone verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, that Israel's leaders, the Sanhedrin, the highest council in Israel, well they have not been very happy with Jesus. They're trying to publicly discredit the Lord. And so because they viewed Jesus as a false Messiah, and because Jesus and his teachings were threatening their power, uh, powerful positions over the people... They've decided, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to join forces in order to bring Jesus down. Even though thousands of Jewish people in the first century were flocking to Jesus, Israel's leaders said no way. And so they knew that right now, because the crowd was infatuated with the Lord, and I think we're right around Wednesday of the last week in the Lord's life, So they know right now, if we go in there and we arrest him publicly, we're gonna cause a riot with the crowd that is infatuated with them. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees are waiting for a more private moment under the cover of darkness to apprehend the Lord. And while they're waiting, while they're waiting for their moment to pounce, they proceeded with their public smear campaign. They knew they could make Jesus look bad in front of the people Then the the hearts of the crowd would eventually turn against him. And so what they decided to do is ask the Lord a series of tough questions, a series of controversial questions that no matter how the Lord answered, he would alienate part of the crowd from him. That's their idea to make him look bad. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we saw the Pharisees. They stepped up to the plate. They asked Jesus a controversial question about taxes. Do we, as the Jewish community, pay taxes to the Roman Empire, those who have us under their thumbs? And Jesus gives an amazing answer. You remember that from two weeks ago. I'm not going to re-preach the sermon, but the crowd marvels. Jesus handles it because you can't stump Jesus. Two weeks ago, the Sadducees step up to the plate. And they ask the Lord a tough question, a controversial question about the resurrection. And once again, the Lord handles it in a beautiful way. In our passage today, the Pharisees are gonna step up to the plate again. As you look at the parallel passage in Matthew, you see that the guy that approaches Jesus now in our passage today is a Pharisee, and he is also a scribe. And so they I want you to just kind of picture it in in, in your minds. Here's the Pharisees. They're hardened against Jesus, and they're pushing forward this learned man, this scribe. It says in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. If you're looking at that verse right now, say amen. amen. really hope you're following along. And one of the, what's the word? Scribes. So we're introduced to a new character here. And one of the scribes came up, and heard them, that's Jesus and the Sadducees, disputing with one another. And I gotta stop you right there before we continue on. And I wanna talk about what the scribes did in Israel so you understand who this guy is. So when you look at Vine's expository dictionary about the scribes, you see that their functions regarding the law, that's the law of Moses, the Torah, God's commandments in the first five books of the Bible. That was law, for the Jewish community, first century Judaism. The, their functions regarding the law were to teach it, develop it, and use it in connection with the Sanhedrin, that's the highest council of Israel, and various local courts. And so the scribes were essentially the lawyers of the day. They were experts in the law of Moses. They primarily did two things. They copied and they interpreted, okay? And so they copied God's word from uh, document to document. I mean, we're we're 1500 years before the printing press is gonna be discovered by Gutenberg. And so these guys meticulously uh, copied uh, word for word, God's scripture from parchment to parchment And so they did that for hours and hours and hours. And as you do that, you become an expert in what you're writing, an expert in the law. So not only did they copy it, they also interpret it for the community, whenever various disputes would come up in Israel. And so as they're doing this work of copying and interpreting, they discover that there's hundreds, literally hundreds of commandments in the Torah, And so the big question that the scribes debated uh, with one another about was, okay, God has given hundreds of commands to Israel. Here's the big question. Which one is the greatest commandment of all? Now you need to know that the Pharisees who kind of pushed this learned lawyer to ask this question, their hearts are hardened, their motives are impure, They want a controversial question to be asked because everybody disagrees about this question. What's the greatest commandment of all? Trying to alienate part of the crowd from Jesus. But I believe this guy has a different heart. This scribe seems like the Lord is drawing him. Seems like this is an honest question. You know, there's people who ask dishonest questions and honest questions even here at the church. You know that, right? Sometimes he ask a question, they've already got the answer in their mind. They're just looking for an argument or they're just trying to push their agenda. But other people have honest questions. They really wanna know what God has to say in his word. I think that's where this, this uh, scribe is. And so once again, he approaches the Lord, verse 28. He hears that Jesus has answered the Sadducees' question about the resurrection really well. And then the second part of verse 28 The scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus, you know, there's hundreds of commandments that God has given Israel. Which one is most important? And Jesus answered in verse 29. Now, if everybody could just look at me for a second. I want you to feel the weight, the gravity, the importance of what we're looking at right now. God is real? Do you believe that? Amen. He's given commandments to people. They're asking which one's most important. Jesus is Messiah. Do you believe that? Amen. He's about to answer because he knows something about this. Okay, so this is a big deal right now where we are in the Bible. What is the greatest commandment of all, Jesus? Jesus answered in verse 29, hear. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. So Jesus just quoted the central command, I'm sorry, the central confession of Judaism and that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So we're going to hit the rewind button. Go 1500 years before Christ, Moses says this here. Okay, so everybody say the word here. Hear. hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, because the first word is here, and because the word In the Hebrew language for here is Shema. This is known universally as the Shema right here. Now, it's actually three different passages in the Torah. We're just going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. And so this is the Shema. And so God is saying through Moses to his people, Israel, this is important. I want you to hear it like you've never heard anything before. The Lord God is one. And you need to love the Lord your God with all your being, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. In other words, there shouldn't be anyone or anything that even comes close to your love for the one who knits you together in your mama's womb. You need to love God. It's commandment number one. The Shema continues in the very next verse, Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. God says through Moses to his people, when these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them, what's the word? <laughs> to your who? I just wanna pause right there and encourage you parents. That commandment is just as good today as it was 2,000, 3,500 years ago. That commandment's still very important. Moms and dads, you may say, well, you know, I I give my kid over to Ethan and his team and they teach the Bible to my kid. We have one hour with your kid. You have every day with your kid. And God says, I want you to teach your kids my word. Amen, parents? Take that responsibility. You say, well, they don't wanna hear it. Well, guess what? You're the parent, they're the kid. You have authority over them. Well, they'll pitch pitch a fit and scream. Yeah, the sun's gonna rise tomorrow. They're kids. So let's just do our jobs. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them. This is cool. God's saying, I want you to talk about my word. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you what? And when you what? Okay, and so God wanted his people to talk about his word, his laws, when they lied down and when they got up. And so what did the Jews do? They took this to heart. That means that they recited the Shema, not just this passage, but all three. They recited it every night before they went to bed and every morning when they got up. Devoted Jews still do the same thing today, right now. Every morning, they, they, they pray the Shema. Every evening, they pray the Shema. And so as you continue to read it, the very next verse, verse eight, says you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now as I've studied hermeneutics and seek to rightly divide the word of truth, I personally believe that this is figurative language that God is saying figuratively, I want my word to be close at hand. I want my word to be on your mind. I want you to live your life by my book. But you need to know that around the fourth century BC, uh, some in the Jewish community began to take that verse literally. And so what they did is they wrote out little scriptures from the Torah, from the First five books of the Bible, I think, think specifically it was Exodus and Deuteronomy, they wrote those words out and they put them in little leather boxes called phylacteries, also known as tefillins. And they would put it in the box and they would tie it around their head. And so here you see an Orthodox Jewish gentleman. He has the phylactery on and in that little leather box is God's word. So he's taking that verse that we just read literally, I'm certainly not gonna criticize him for that. Hey, he's, he takes God's word seriously. The very next um, picture we have here is you have an IDF soldier, and he's got the uh, tefillin, uh, the, uh, the phylactery, and it's tied to his left arm. One of my favorite memories from one of my trips to Israel was I got to go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And so, um, got to go there and I'm on the right and someone in our team snapped a picture and I didn't know they were taking my picture but it certainly blessed me later. Uh, It reminds me, every time I look at this picture, the gentleman to the left is an IDF soldier so that reminds me to pray for the security of Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know we should be praying for Israel? We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God's word tells us to do that. God said to Abraham and his descendants, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So we should bless Israel. As Pastor Will said um, this morning, um, because you as a church family give, we're able to give. And so we, we support two organizations in Israel. We seek to bless Israel as one of millions of local church bodies around the world. And so the guy on my left reminds me to pray for the security of Israel because Israel's about the size of New Jersey. And I don't know if you looked at the map, but they have some really tough neighbors who hate them and wanna wipe them off the face of the map. So we pray for the security of Israel. And then I look at the guy to his left and there's an Orthodox Jewish man. He has the tefillin, the phylactery on his forehead, I'm not sure what he's reading, perhaps it's from the Torah, but that picture reminds me to pray for Israel that they would accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Because Jesus is the answer. And I hope you will uh, pray with me as well as we pray for these people that are so special to the heart of God. Now sadly, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, what did they do? They broadened their phylacteries. So remember, around the fourth century B.C., uh, Jews began to take that scripture in Deuteronomy 6, literally began to make the boxes on their arms and on their heads. And so in Jesus' day, four centuries later, here you had the Pharisees and they broadened. In other words, they made the box on their head really big and the box on their arm really big. And their idea was to draw attention to themselves. Hey, look, my boxes are bigger than your boxes, so I'm, I'm more godly than you are. And of course, we know, man, Jesus didn't mince any words. He let them have it. He rebuked them for their self-centeredness. And so leave it to the Pharisees to always mess up a good thing. Which is the greatest commandment of all, out of all the commandments that God gave Israel? Look at verse 29 again. Jesus tells us, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall, what's the word? Love. love. Everybody say love. love. You think we need more of that in the world today? Amen. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That leads us to our next point, and that is that the greatest commandment of all is to love God with all our being. Now, if you really love the Lord with all your being, it's gonna show, not primarily by what you say with your lips, but how you live your life. Man, that was so good. I gotta say that one again, because I think, I think your minds may be wandering and thinking about lunch right now. So come back to me right here. If you're with me, say Amen. If you really love the Lord, it's not gonna be primarily about what you say with your lips. It's gonna be how you live your life. How you set your priorities, how you spend your time Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. If you ask a Christian, do you love God? The answer, of course, is gonna be, yes, I love God. But then if you ask that Christian, well, tell me, how much time do you spend with God? And after their face goes white <laughs> and they hymn haul around, if they're really honest, they'll probably say, well, you know, a lot of days I pray before I eat. Now, I have a question for you. How long does it take to pray before dinner? 10 seconds, we'll go with that. 10 Seconds. Let me ask you another question. How strong would a marriage be if a husband and wife only spoke 10 seconds a day to one another? You see where I'm going here? Do you know how you spell love, ladies and gentlemen? Not L-O-V-E. You spell love T-I-M-E. If you really love someone, you spend time with them. Strong marriages, it's built on quality and quantity time with your spouse, no matter how busy you are. And quality and quantity time is what we need. If we say we love God, man, we got to build that on time spent with the Lord. The best way I know how to illustrate this principle is to tell or retell for some of you a great story about two sisters who lived in a little village called Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. So you have Jerusalem, you have the Kidron Valley, you have the Mount of Olives, you have the eastern side, the other side of the Mount of Olives, and that's where little Bethany was, this little village. And two sisters, their names were Mary and Martha. And they lived there in Bethany. Their story can be found in Luke 10. You don't have to turn there. I'm just gonna tell you the story. And so whenever Jesus went over to Jerusalem, he always made it a point, I gotta go see Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. He loved hanging out with these people. John's gospel says that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And so one day he was in Jerusalem and he decided, you know what? Just two mile walk, I'm gonna go say hi. He goes over there, knocks on their door and Martha opens the door and she's overjoyed to see the Lord, right? It's kind of probably a little bit of a shock, you know, they, did, they couldn't receive a text. Hey, I'm coming over. Um, he just gets a knock and there they are. And we assume there's the 12 disciples. So she invites them all in. Can you see it in your mind? There's 13 grown men who are probably hungry standing in her living room. And so she goes right into serving mode because that's what Martha did. And so she goes in the kitchen. She starts to cook up something great, I'm sure. And what was Jesus doing? He was in the living room leading what we're doing right now, a Bible study. By the way, can I just commend you, this room is pretty full, that every week you come to sit and listen to a 45 minute Bible study. That blesses my heart for two reasons. Number one, it shows that you're serious about God and you really wanna receive his word. Two, it blesses me because I love doing what I do. And so you guys give me a platform to do that every single week. And so if I haven't told you lately, thank you for allowing me to feed the flock of God, the word of God. I really appreciate that with all my heart. Really appreciate that. And by the way, you know, I gotta throw this in. If you haven't joined a Calvary group yet, you can experience what the disciples experienced that day in Martha's living room. You say, if I go online and I join a life group and I go over to that life group, Jesus is gonna be there? Yeah, yes. Did you know the Holy Spirit is also called in the New Testament, the Spirit of Christ? And where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst. We're not there just to fellowship and eat cookies, though that's fun. We're there to experience the presence of the Lord and to do community with one another. So back to our story, Martha's cooking, Jesus is teaching. Do you guys remember what Mary was doing? Sitting at Jesus' feet, taking in the word of God. She liked the word. And so three times we find Mary at the feet of Jesus, Right here in Luke chapter uh, 10, the story that I'm telling you right now, she's at the feet of Jesus receiving his word. And then you see in John chapter 11, she's at the feet of Jesus again, this time crying in tears because her brother Lazarus just died and then in John chapter 12 we see she's at the feet of Jesus again and now what is she doing she is breaking open an expensive bottle of ointment she's pouring it on her on his feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair as an act of worship Jesus says this is to prepare me for my burial why did Mary spend so much time at Jesus feet because ladies and gentlemen she loved the Lord her God, with all her heart, soul, mind and strength. and that showed by time spent with the Lord. And so back to the kitchen, there's Martha, and she's there, and she looks around and she realizes, "My sister's not helping me. I'm in this kitchen all by myself, cooking for all these men. There's probably more, way more than 13, because wherever Jesus is, there's a crowd. I bet her living room was packed. And she's, can you see her cutting the carrot? Boom, boom, boom. And she's thinking about Mary. What is she doing out there at Jesus' feet? She should be in here helping me. Boom, boom, boom. Who does she think she? What is? She's not doing anything. Boom, boom, boom. Finally, she's had it. She marches into the living room, takes a position over the Lord. Can you see this? Hands on her hip. Head going. Right? Last night I I did the whole body and somebody came up to me, a young adult, because only young adults can do this, and said, no, 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 Pastor Mike, it's not the whole body, it's just the head. (laughs) Just the head. So I, I, I stand corrected. And so there's Mary, she's standing over, can you see Jesus looking up at her? And she says, and I quote, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Whoa. How does Jesus respond to that? Martha, Martha. Whenever he uses your name twice, you know you're in trouble. (laughs) When I was a kid growing up, it was Michael Robert, and I was out the back door. (laughs) Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. By the way, that's some of you this morning. You're so anxious. You're so troubled about many things, but how many things are necessary? Okay, so everybody say one thing. Go ahead. One thing. Mary has chosen the good portion, the one thing, which will not be taken away from her. What was the one thing that was necessary? Not serve supper. suffer. The one thing that was necessary was spending time with Jesus. And if Martha would have followed her her sister Mary's example, she wouldn't have been all stressed out, standing over the Lord, anxious, troubled. She should have been in the living room, sitting right next to her sister, taking in God's word. And you might say, well, what about the meal? Well, apparently Jesus thought it could wait. And you say, well, weren't those guys hungry? Listen to me, if you're with me, say amen. Spiritual food is more important than physical food. Spiritual food will satisfy your stomach, but I'm sorry, physical food will satisfy your stomach, but spiritual food will satisfy your soul. What's more important, the outer man or the inner man? The outer woman or the inner woman? The outer person or the inner person? Listen, the inner person. The inner person lives forever. This shell. Here today, gone tomorrow. And what's sad in my own life is I do my own self-evaluation because you know whenever I do this, I've got three point back at me is sometimes literally I'm more excited about dinner than I am about Bible study. And I've got to do my own self-assessment and say, Lord, I need some revival here. And it doesn't help my wife's such a good cook. But anyway, (laughs) this is why some people live by a motto. Now this is not in the Bible, this is just some people live by this motto. Because they know that the inner person's more important than the outer person, their motto is this, no Bible, no breakfast. So they make sure that in the morning, if they're running late, if it comes between do I have time for breakfast or do I have time to get in God's word, I'm gonna forget breakfast and I'm gonna get into God's word. No word, no Wheaties. I'm not saying you have to live by that motto. I'm just saying it's a pretty good motto. Here's why. Because when we sit at Jesus' feet in the morning, Here's what he does. He fills us with a peace that surpasses all understanding. We can get up from those devotion times and we can go out in the world and serve the Lord without being all stressed and frustrated and anxious and without putting our hands on our hip and doing this to people during that day. Why? Because when you're with the person who gives peace, the Prince of Peace, you tend to have peace that day. Oh man, this is what we need in the church. And so we benefit from sitting at the feet of Jesus, I believe the Lord enjoys it. Do you believe that? I do. I believe he's tickled pink. When we take time out of our busy schedules to go one-on-one with him in a prayer closet or a living room or a prayer walk or out to the beach or to a park, I think that blesses his soul. Don't you know God loves it when we slow down to take time with him? Don't you know that he loves it when we wanna connect with him? Our little granddaughter, Serafina, is two and a half years old. That means she likes to move all the time. How many of you guys have two-year-olds, right? You know what I'm talking about? And so they come over to the house, Megan and Ethan and the, and the crew, and, and there's Serafina, and she's, right? And so sometimes I just wanna stop her, say, stop for a minute. Look at me, I wanna connect with you. And it's like, ah, she's gone again, right? And that's how we are so often. We get up in the morning. Oh, we're late for work. And we grab our coffee and zoom, we're off. And the Lord's up in heaven. He says, Martha, Martha. Or insert your name. You're troubled. You're anxious about so many things. But one thing is necessary. Say one one thing. One thing is necessary. Time spent with me. This is what David did, check out what David said. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. It wasn't power, it wasn't riches, it wasn't position, it wasn't worldly wealth, it wasn't women. Even though he had a a problem there that was taken care of, he repented of it, he got his heart right with the Lord. But he says one thing, God, I seek after that I, I can dwell in your house all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is why, in spite of his stupid mistakes, this is why God said David is a man after my own heart because he looked into David's heart and it was sincere and he knew that David loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I wanna encourage you this week To show the Lord that you love him. Not by what you say. But by how you live. How you prioritize your day. By doing the one thing. Every day this week. You say that's legalism. No it's not. It's life. Whether you feel like it or not. Every single day. Get at the Lord's feet. Get into his word, get into prayer, get into worship. The greatest commandment of all is to love God with all our being. But there's a ne- another commandment. Jesus is not done teaching. Look at verse 31 now. He decides to add a second commandment found in Torah. He says, the second is this, young man, scribe. You shall love, everybody say love. Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so Jesus is now quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. 1500 years BC, God says through Moses, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Don't bear a grudge. Some of you right now in a room this size, watching live on Facebook, listening on the podcast, you have a grudge right now in your heart because somebody hurt you or offended you, you're all upset, you're holding a grudge, you're not right with God. You say, you don't know what they did to me. You are not right with God. You cannot hold a grudge against anybody, no matter what they've done for you. You need to forgive them. You say, why? Because God's forgiven you. You think God's up there holding a grudge against you? Let it go. Forgive them from your heart. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but here it is. You shall love the Lord, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, I am the Lord. Okay, so everybody look at me. Love God, that's number one. Number two, love people. Now, why did Jesus link these together? Why did he link loving God and loving people? Well, Warren Wiersbe, I think, is an amazing commentator and Christian and pastor and scholar. I think he hits it right on the head right here. If we love God, we will experience his love within and we'll express that love to others. We do not live by rules, but by relationships. He's talking new covenant stuff here. A loving relationship to God that enables us everybody say enables us to have a loving relationship with others and so when we're, when we're in a loving relationship with the lord here's what he does he enables us to love people but that's the flow you love god first you experience his love and then you're able to love people the apostle john put it this way we love Inference people, we love because he first loved us. Do you see the order there? The only reason that we can love people well is because we've experienced the love of God in our hearts. Romans 5.5, 5, Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says that the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, I'm talking new covenant stuff now. The Holy Spirit of God who used to be out here when we turn from our sins and turn to Christ alone by faith, he comes in and he pours the love of God into us and that empowers us and enables us now to love other people in our lives. It's a beautiful thing. He says, love your neighbor, listen to this, as yourself. Okay, so don't just love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so here's the question, are you still with me? Say amen. How do you love yourself? How do you love yourself? I think I know how you love yourself because I love myself the same way. The way that we love ourselves is we're constantly meeting our own needs. Don't let anybody ever tell you, I don't love myself. That's the biggest joke on the planet. Of course you love yourself. You know why? Because you're taking care of yourself all day long. You guys talk back to me right now. When you're hungry, what do you do? Eat. When you're thirsty, what do you do? Drink. When you're tired, what do you do? Sleep. Man, you guys got this down. <laughs> Last service, it was go to bed, rest, sleep, <laughs> vacation, whatever, you know. <laughs> man, you're like, you're like, eat, drink, sleep. It's like the military here. I'll salute you right now, man. You guys are into it, thank you. Let's see if you do this one all right. What do you do when you're sick? Ah, there it is. There's no right answer, right? You take medicine, go to the hospital, you go see your doctor. What do you do when you're hot? When you're hot, you turn down that AC. Somebody may say, you moved to Michigan, right? Now listen. Did you know Florida is really a great place to live? Did you know in Florida, it's 74 degrees all year long? You just have to stay inside, (laughs) right? Florida's a great state. Stop thinking about moving. It's great here. But, But here's my point. When you're hot, you turn down the AC. When you're cold, you put on a coat. You and I are always taking care of ourselves. We're always meeting our needs, why? Because we love ourselves. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean practically? Let's get real practical and do some homework here. If someone is in need this week and we have the ability to meet that need, we should do so just like we would meet our own need. Amen or oh me. So don't just say, oh, I love my neighbor as myself. No, do that right there. Now, just, I can't believe I have to say this, but just for clarification, of course, I'm not saying that if someone has the ability to work and they choose not to work, and they're asking you, hitting you up for money, I'm not saying give that person money because we interpret the Bible with the Bible and in another place in the Bible, it says if a man doesn't get up and go to work, he should not eat. I'm not talking about that. I'm also not saying giving money to people who are gonna use your money for alcohol or drugs. I'm saying be a good Samaritan. You see, On another occasion, earlier in his ministry, another scribe said to Jesus, you know, what are the commandments? What should I do? And they're talking about this very subject and Jesus and him are talking about loving your neighbor as yourself and this guy gets under conviction, which by the way, it's okay. You know, sometimes when you're in a church service and you start feeling convicted, that's a good thing. Don't push that away. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. This guy comes under conviction, and he tries to justify himself, and he says, well, who's my neighbor? You want me to love my neighbor as myself? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus told, us, told a story. He said there was a man, Jewish man, by the way, going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and all of a sudden, he's surrounded by robbers. You guys remember what happened? These guys beat him to a pulp, stripped off his clothes, and left him, in Jesus' words, half dead. Can you see the guy? He's bloodied, beaten, bruised. He can't even get up. He's so, just like beat the tar out of this guy. And Jesus says, here comes a priest down the road and he sees the man. And he says, nah, I don't have time for this. And walks around to the other side and keeps going. And then the next thing Jesus says, a Levite comes down the road, sees the man, he's bleeding. No, crosses over the other side, keeps going. Two religious people, a priest and a Levite, see a man in need, and they do not stop to help the man. You know what that tells me? That tells me that their religion, however they perceived it in their own life, wasn't doing them any good at all. And then Jesus says, Here comes a Samaritan. He sees the man. And he has compassion. Can you say the word compassion? compassion? That's what we need in the church. He has compassion on the guy. Now the, Assy- uh, the Samaritans were half Jewish, half Assyrian. So they were a mixed race. And that's why John tells us in his gospels that the Jews down in Judea had no dealings with the Samaritans up in Samaria because the pure Jews looked down their noses at the mixed Samaritans. In fact, we're not even going to walk through your nation. We're going to cross the Jordan River, go up through the Decapolis, and then cross over to Galilee when we want to go fishing in the Sea of Galilee many Jews in that day were racist. The Samaritan was not a racist. He sees a Jewish man and he says, I gotta help. And so in, despite the fact that there was racial difference, in spite of the fact it was inconvenient, in spite of the fact that it would cost, this guy stops and he does practical things. He doesn't say, be warmed and filled brother. No, he, he takes out his bottle of wine and he, he, he pours it into the guy's wounds. That's an antiseptic to stop infection. He then takes some oil, olive oil, pours it into the wounds to try to soothe the pain. He takes bandages. He's not carrying a first aid kit on his camel. That means he takes off his own robe and he begins to rip his robe. He, 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 he bandages the wounds. He lifts this guy up right and puts him on his own animal so that the injured guy can ride and he can walk he takes him all the way to an inn i don't have no idea where the inn was all i know is that that road between jerusalem and jericho is desolate so it's miles he takes him to an inn and then he, he 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 pays the innkeeper two denarii that's two days wages for the common laborer it wasn't like hey everybody blow my trumpet. Look what I'm doing. Make sure you put a little plaque on the end of my name here. No, he didn't tell anybody. Did you know that we can be good Samaritans and we don't have to say a word to anybody? God sees it. He just forks it out. And then he says, hey, I'm going to follow up. If you spend any more money on this guy, you know, give me a call. I'll come back. I'll take care of it. Of course, he didn't call him literally, but he he did follow up on the guy. And then after sharing that story, Jesus asked the scribe this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, please finish the rest of the verse. There's your homework, church family. Go and do likewise. Listen, don't just come to church once a week. Be the church. Live it out. This week, this month, this year, when you see someone in need and you have the ability to meet that need, meet the need just like you would meet your own needs, taking medicine, going to bed, putting on clothes, turning down the AC, feeding food, drink and drink. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God first. He'll empower you with his love to love people well. Even if they are from a different race, even if it's inconvenient, even if it costs time and money, we need to do this as individuals. We need to do this as a church. This is why 10% of everything that comes in in the offering, 10% goes right back out in this local church to support mission organizations, church plants, outreach, benevolence. And my board of directors that holds me accountable, every single year they make sure that 10% minimum goes out of this church. Why? Because we can't ask you follow the principle of the tithe unless we're tithing as a church. And by the way, I I personally feel in 14 and a half years, the Lord has opened the windows of heaven and blessed this church beyond my wildest imagination. We thank God for his faithfulness. Well, let's finish up. Verse 32. And the scribe responds to Jesus. And he said to him, you're right, teacher. By the way, that's the first time a Pharisee has ever told Jesus, you're right. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is none other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, priest and Levite who wouldn't even stop and help a guy in need, putting ritual over relationship. No, love, love is the most important thing of all, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask Jesus any questions. And so by the scribes passionate, sincere response, Jesus, who has x-ray vision and can see in all of our hearts, he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, this guy is almost persuaded almost persuaded that the person standing before him is the king, the Messiah of Israel. His colleagues, the Pharisees who are standing back, they're not liking the way this is going. They're not liking how any of these questions are being answered, by the way. They would never turn to Jesus as their Messiah. But this guy, almost persuaded. But here's the problem. Almost is only good in horseshoes. Jesus says you're close to the kingdom. He didn't say you've entered the kingdom. How could the scribe enter the kingdom? Here's how, turn from his sin of unbelief to Jesus, standing right there and receive him as his Messiah, as his king. Listen, if he would have done that, here's what would happen a few days later, Jesus is crucified, dies for the sins of the whole world. Third day rises again, day of Pentecost. I believe this guy would have been in the upper room with 120 Jews praying and he would have received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two. How about you? Are you close to the kingdom? Are you almost persuaded What I need to tell you this afternoon is that close is only good in horseshoes. And this is not a game. We're talking about your eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, as controversial as it is, here's the truth. Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. And the reason why is the cross. You and I are sinners. The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, Lord and King, God became man, went to a cross after living a sinless life and he took your sins. You say, my sins? Yep, all our sins into his body on the tree. He suffered, he died. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Luther says, Jesus became the worst sinner there ever was. You ever thought about that? He's perfect, he's pure, he's a lamb of God, white as snow, and yet he became the worst sinner that's ever lived. He became a curse. He experienced, I believe, outer darkness on that cross, hell, So you and I would never have to worry about going there. That's love. He died and he rose again, victorious over death and Satan and sin. That's the gospel. Have you received Jesus? You say, I believe in my head, the devils believe and tremble. The Bible says as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Do you want to receive Jesus? Do you want to accept him into your life, ask him to forgive your sins and be your savior and master of your life? Do you need to come to Jesus? Do you need to come back to him because you're far away? If that's true, why don't we just take care of it right now? And you say, really, in front of all these people? Listen, we're not embarrassed of Jesus. He was not embarrassed of you. God hung half naked on a cross publicly. And if we acknowledge Jesus before men, he says, I'll acknowledge you before my father in heaven. So if you need to come to Jesus, again, this is not a game. This is your eternal life. If you need to come to Jesus or come back to Jesus, I'm gonna ask you right now, wherever you are, just stand up where you are. Let them know publicly, Lord, I want you. I'm coming to you. I'm coming back to you. Just stand and remain standing. Church, be praying. But let's see if if there's anyone here today that wants to come to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Just stand to your feet. I see this gentleman all the way in the back. God bless you. That's awesome. That's awesome. Takes a lot of courage. And, And by the way, God bless you, sir, right here. Awesome. Let's really encourage the people. Let's really encourage them. Just stand and remain standing. God bless you, ma'am. That's beautiful, beautiful. And, and, and here's what I know: there's more people right now, and there's a struggle going on in your mind and heart. And, and here's the answer: yes, stand up. Stand up for Jesus Christ. Receive Him. He's the only way. His blood is the only way. No other religious leader shed their blood. Without the, the uh, shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of our sins. And so, just final call. If anyone wants to join these three or four brave souls, just stand at your feet. God bless you guys in the back. Beautiful, awesome, great job. I love seeing a couple, a couple standing together, saying we're gonna do this right. Jesus is gonna be the center of our, of our relationship. God bless you guys. So you guys, I commend you for your courage, I commend you for your public stand for Christ. And we, we want you to know we love you and we want to do everything we can to help you in your, in your relationship with Jesus Christ so go ahead and be seated at this time and so here's what we're going to do for those of you who stood maybe those of you who, who, who didn't stand but you want to get in on this okay so, so please listen to me we're going to go to Jesus right now in prayer how many of you believe he's right here in this room by his spirit right he's right here And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved, not maybe, shall be saved That's a promise of God. So if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so if you're ready to call on the name of the Lord and receive him and him alone as your savior, um, I want you to say this out loud, okay? In church family, we're going to say it out loud with them uh, to encourage them in this. So right now to Jesus, say this. Say, "Dear Lord Jesus, Dear Lord Jesus I know I've sinned. I, sinned. I know I deserve death and hell. I but I believe you came and you went to a cross and you died in my place." paid for all my sins. I believe you rose again. And now you are seated at the right hand of the Father. I choose you. Come into my heart. Be my Savior. Forgive my sins. And be the Lord of my life. It's your name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.